Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I deliver you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah and the Hittite with the sword, and I have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, we thank you for these scriptures that contain your great story of redemption, this cosmic story of you coming to rescue humanity from its sin, Lord. But we also recognize our story in this too, and that you come into our personal lives, you come into our personal stories, and you rescue us as well. So Father, help us to see the beauty of that gospel this morning, the beauty of your forgiveness, the beauty of the fact that you have removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. So may your spirit come and teach us, Father, in Christ's name, amen. Often on television uh, or, or uh, on newscasts, sometimes uh, there will be a screen that pops up uh, before a movie or something like that that warns that explicit images or difficult-to-watch things are about to follow. Sometimes a newscaster will come up and introduce a news story that way. Well, this story and the story that it tackles in the scriptures deserves that kind of warning as you approach it. We've been looking over the past couple weeks at the life of David. We've seen him to be an incredibly remarkable character, a man who has demonstrated an incredible passion for God, a sensitivity to God's plan and God's movement in his life. We've seen Uh, incredible snapshots, scenes of unconventional grace and unconventional kindness from David. We look at the book of Psalms, which is mostly written by David, and we see a man who was honest before God, a man who was passionate for God and passionate for his ways in a way that is unparalleled when you look at all other characters of the scriptures. But most of the snapshots that we've looked at over the past couple weeks have been snapshots of David's life when he was going through difficult periods, times of of wilderness in his life when he wrote these things and did these incredibly great deeds. But now as we read throughout the book of Samuel and we study his life, things are beginning to change in David's life. He has become king of the entire land. And the question we ask ourselves is, will David go the same way as so many other rulers do when they come to power? Will the fact that he is in power 
end up changing him? Initially, we don't see that it does. We see the same kind of David that we saw before. But as you continue to read throughout the book of Samuel, a subtle shift happens in David's life. A subtle shift towards corruption. If you were with us last week, I told you a story about an article that I'd read uh, in, in Wired magazine. This article was read, written in, in 2011, and what it did is it examined this very thing. It examined why power tends to corrupt people once they had it. The article said this, it said, according to psychologists, one of the main problems with authority is that it makes us less sympathetic to the concerns and emotions of others. Power quickly turns us into hypocrites. The sense of power makes it easy to rationalize away all sorts of ethical lapses of judgment. And the article goes on to examine all the things about why those things happen, but it concludes this way. It says this, The dynamics of power can profoundly influence how we think. When we climb the ladder of status, our inner arguments get warped and our natural sympathy for others is vanquished. Instead of fretting about the effects of our actions, we just go ahead and act. We deserve what we want and how dare they resist. Don't they know who we are? This sort of subtle shift we begin to see in the life of David. And we see that in the the story that we're going to look at this morning. But more than that, we don't just see David's story, but we see ourselves in him. We see our story in him, but we also see how God meets us in our greatest moments of failure. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see a few things. And the first thing that we see this morning is about the very nature of sin. We see that sin has a tendency to compound itself. It has a tendency to snowball. It has a tendency to build upon itself. You know, the concept of sin isn't really a popular concept in our culture anymore. You don't even hear the words very often in our world anymore. In faith circles, we have different names for it now. We call sin brokenness. We call it missteps. We call it imperfections. And and if you go out into the world, nobody uses the word sin anymore. They say things like flaws or areas of growth in our personal lives or instances of unhealth or maybe even differences of opinion. But in the end, sin is sin. It is radical rebellion against God and, and, and his ways. It is an effort for us to control him. Is it an effort for us to live according to our own path? It is our intense desire to be our own gods. And so often in our culture, we don't have these labels or even these paradigms anymore. That is until we come to a story that we are about to read and follow here this morning. The story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it begins this way. David, our our king, opts no longer to go out to war, which is very surprising. 
In David's early life, he was the first one to go out in the war. He was the one that was leading the charge, but now as king, he is content to let other people do his fighting. You see, David's heart is beginning to change. And the story tells us that one day he's walking on the roof of his palace and he's looking around in his kingdom and he spots a woman who is bathing out in the distance. And immediately his heart wants her for himself. But this isn't some sweet story of love at first sight. Instead, this is lust and an incredible force. So what David does is he inquires about this woman. He sends his messengers to find out about this woman. And when his messengers come back, he learns that she is already married to someone else. She is married to Uriah, his, his trusted soldier who is loyal to him to the very end. But even though he learns this, even though he learns this fact, it does not stop him from doing what his lust drives him to do. And it says in verse 4, So David sent his messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, this isn't a forced or violent rape that we would see in our culture, but this is what other people have called a power rape. This is David using his power as leverage in order to make this woman do the very thing that he wanted to do. And when David is done, he dismisses her out of his presence like she was nothing. But just weeks later, David receives messages from the very messengers that he sent before. And the message that he receives is that this woman Bathsheba is pregnant with David's child. You see, the thing you see very quickly in this story is that our sin tends to compound itself. It tends to grow. It tends to snowball. It tends to expand Upon itself. And you and I know that this is true from our own lives. When we think about our own lives and we examine the things that we've done in our past, I can remember specific instances where I knew I did something that I should not do, but instead of fessing up to it or, if, or, or owning it for what it was, instead I chose to lie about it. I chose to cover it up. I chose to use more sin in order to cover up the sin that I had committed. We see this all the time. H.L. Mencken, who was a, a famous author, said this. He said, For every complex problem, there is always an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. Well, David has done something terribly wrong, and he's confronted with a very complex problem. But instead of doing the right thing, instead, he chooses, he chooses to cover it up. He chooses a very clear, simple, and wrong solution. You see, Bathsheba has, has turned up to be pregnant, so David feels the need to do something. He feels the need to cover it up. So he calls Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, out from the battlefield. He brings him into the palace from the battlefield, and his hope is that Uriah, with some time off, will end up being with his wife, and that the pregnancy could be blamed on Uriah instead of David. So what he does is he calls Uriah in from the field. But Uriah refuses to visit his wife. 
He refuses to visit her because he believes that it's not right for him to be with his wife if all the other soldiers are out on the battlefield. You see what the author's doing is comparing Uriah's integrity with David's lack of integrity in this moment. So his first attempt is foiled. So his next attempt is he brings Uriah in and he tries to get Uriah drunk, thinking that that might succeed in having him go to his wife. But once again, that plan fails. So finally, what David does is he writes orders on a sheet of paper and he sends it out with Uriah to the commander of the army. And those instructions tell the commander of the army to put Uriah at the front lines of the battle so indeed he would be killed. So Uriah has to walk back to the front lines of this battle, holding his very own death warrant in his hands. Sure enough, Uriah is placed on the front line and he is killed that day in battle. David's plan was successful. Uriah was killed and what appeared to everyone else to be just a casualty of war was in reality a very carefully crafted murder from the hands of the king. Once Uriah is out of the picture, David does what he knows best to do, and that is he goes and he takes Bathsheba as his own to become his own wife. You see, David's idleness led to an instance of lust, and his lust gave birth to an instance of adultery and rape, and his adultery ended up giving birth to a deception, and his deception ended up giving birth to something even worse, and that is a murder. And what we see is sin compounds itself. Sin compounds itself. But we also see from our story is not only does sin grow upon itself, but sin also brings consequences. Sin brings consequences. About nine months later, Nathan, who is the prophet during David's kingship, It is revealed to to Nathan what David has done. So Nathan comes to David and he confronts David. He tells David that, that your sin is now known. It is known by God. It is known by me. Therefore, you are going to have to face the consequences of your sin. Consequences that you are going to have to bear in your lives for the rest of your life. The first consequence is that this baby that is about to be born will end up dying. And 1 Samuel chapter 12, or 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us that the baby is born to Bathsheba and just seven days later, that baby dies. But next, Nathan tells David about another consequence. He tells them that, that the sword will never depart from his house. And what you know from the, the rest of the David story that for the remainder of his kingship, there was constant conflict in the life of David. But it wasn't just political conflict. It was conflict that happened even in his very own family, in his very own life. The next chapter we read in in 2 Samuel uh, tells a tragic story that involves David's three children. David has a son named Ammon. And David's son, Ammon, lusts after his sister, Tamar, another one of David's daughter, 
a daughter, another one of David's daughter. And what he does is he ends up deceiving and raping her and then dismissing her from his presence. Well, this enrages David's other son, Absalom, who then ends up murdering his brother Ammon for what he did. A tragic story of this infighting in David's very own family amongst his very own kids. And no doubt, as David would have witnessed this thing play out in his very own house, he must have been reminded of the words of Nathan that said, The sword will never depart from your, final, from your house. But the consequences aren't even done after that. Finally, it tells us uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan says this to David. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And of course, as you read on in the book of 2 Samuel, you read a story about that son Absalom. And later on, he stages a coup and takes over the kingdom from his very own father. David has to flee the city of Jerusalem. And in an incredibly perverse show of dominance, Absalom ends up raping all of David's concubines in the sight of the entire nation. On the very roof where David first conceived his sin with Bathsheba. You see, the filth of this story is all over the place. It is apparent all throughout these chapters of 2 Samuel. The consequences of David's sin are incredibly real for him. They don't just cause incredible damage in his life, but they, they involve incredible damage in the lives of his descendants and even the generations after him. And what we are reminded from his story is that sin has incredible consequences, often in very destructive ways. You see, this, of course, is a very different Daniel than the one we've, or David, than the one we've seen thus far in the book, uh, the books of Samuel. Biblical history records David to be the most, most righteous king that Israel ever had. He is given the greatest honor of being the great ancestor of Jesus himself. He is known to be a man that was after God's own heart. He becomes the the quintessential king that all other kings are intended to pattern themselves on and to live up to. But this story just seems so different. It seems so incongruous to all the other stories that we read about David. We wonder how could such wickedness be so present in a king that is so revered? How could God choose someone who is so flawed as David to do such incredible things? Knowing this story, knowing his sin, how could the scriptures call him a man who is after God's own heart? And the answer to all those questions comes in the next point. Because we see that sin is met with grace. Sin is met with grace. The fingerprints of God's grace are all over this story. God's grace comes even in the confrontation. 
Nathan, who was the prophet, is sent to confront David. At that moment, he must have figured out that he had gotten away with what he had done. The baby had been born. Very few people knew about what David had done. But ultimately, David knew in his own heart. Reflecting back on that year, David writes these words in Psalm 32. He writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. You see, just as David, in the story we looked at last week, went out and sought to bestow kindness on Mephibosheth, we see that God, in his grace, seeks to confront David. Even the confrontation was gracious. But God's grace also comes in opening up David's eyes to his sin. You see, Nathan comes and tells David this incredibly elaborate parable about a poor man and a lamb who suffered an great injustice. And when Nathan tells him this story, it really gets David's juices flowing. It gets him excited about his own self-righteousness. It gets him indignant about this injustice that he observes. And he is ready to condemn this injustice with swift and powerful vengeance. He commands a death sentence for the man who did this in this parable. And then in a moment, Nathan turns the tables. And he says to David, he says, you are the man. One commentator said that this is the most dramatic statement in all of the Old Testament because in a moment, David's eyes are open to his sin. He realizes he was the one who has been unjust. He is the one who is deserving deserving of death. He is the one who is guilty of sin. So David responds. He responds very profoundly, but he responds Very simply, and in his brokenness, in his moment of his broken spirit, he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's response to him is just as profound, and it is just as simple. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You know, the challenge for us is to to see ourselves In David's story. Sure, we are all sinful, but our sins may not be quite as heinous as David's. But we all know that from our own lives that sin is present and sin tends to build on itself. It tends to compound itself. And we've all felt the consequences of sin in our lives as well. But we can also experience God's grace just as David did in this story. Because grace comes to us when we recognize, along with David, that we are the man. We are the ones who are guilty. We are the ones who deserve God's judgment. Eugene Peterson said this. He said, this is the gospel focus. You are the man. You are the woman. The gospel is never about somebody else. It's always about you. It's always about me. The gospel is never a truth in general. It's always a truth in specific. 
The gospel is never a commentary on ideas or culture or conditions. It's always about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, actual sin. You, me, who you are, what you've done, and who I am, and what I've done. But ultimately, the gospel is a story about God's grace meeting us in the midst of our sin. It's about God's grace giving birth to repentance. And that is the last thing that we see in our story, that repentance is the fruit of God's grace. Because repentance is recognizing God's grace when we see it and responding to it. It is the fruit of God's grace taking root in our lives in the inmost place. Because one commentator wrote this, he said, Only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to God who saves me from sin. If I'm ignorant or indifferent to my sin, I'm ignorant or indifferent to the great and central good news. You see, David wasn't recognized as this great king of Israel because of slaying the giant of Goliath. He isn't recognized as this great king because of his kindness to Saul or his kindness to Mephibosheth. He's not recognized as a great king because of his great military might. Ultimately, he is recognized as a great king because of his repentance. Repentance is the thing that his predecessor Saul never seemed to be able to do. And it was the very thing that made David a great king. It was his recognition of his great sin and his response to God's great grace. Psalm 32 and and 51 are both psalms that were written by David in response to this story of sin. And in those Psalms, he says incredibly powerful things. He says in in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He says in, in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, God, and renew your spirit within me. And he says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven whose sins are covered. You see, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, doesn't mean that that you are more righteous than everyone else. It doesn't mean that your church attendance or your church behavior is better than everyone else. It doesn't mean that those things are the things that make you right before God. What makes you a Christian is your repentance. It's the fact that your eyes have been opened to your sin. You've owned it. And then you've responded to God's grace in that moment. See, Nathan's Nathan's last statement to David was that the Lord has put away your sin. You will not have to die. But the reality is for your sin to be put away, for my sin to be put away, for David's sin to be put away, someone did have to die. 
2 Samuel 15 later on tells a story about how David, when his son took over the throne, where David had to flee from Jerusalem. He had to leave the city because his son had taken over the kingdom. And there's this very unique verse that it says in 2 Samuel 15 that says this, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olive, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. You see, David, when he was forcibly removed out of Jerusalem, left, and the scriptures tell us that he was weeping. No doubt he was weeping about his circumstances, but he was also weeping, understanding that that his circumstances were the very consequence of his own sin that he had committed with Bathsheba. But when David left that city weeping, he did not weep as one without hope. And neither do you and I need to weep over our sins without hope. You see, David didn't weep without hope because he understood something. He understood that hundreds of years later, another man would ascend that very same mount. Another man would ascend the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, pleading to God for the cup of God's judgment to pass from him. But ultimately, that cup didn't. And that man would be betrayed and carried to his death, where he would have to drink the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to. The reality of this story is that, that we are the man. You and I are the man. We are the ones deserving punishment. But Jesus Christ came and he took it for us so that we could experience God's grace. He plunged his hands into the filth so that you and I could be made clean. I don't know if you were watching the news uh, this week, but Lance Armstrong made the news once again this week. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lance Armstrong, but when I was in college, I went through a period where I got really excited about uh, cycling. I went out and I bought a bike and all the gear and I did all the things that that someone who's really excited about cycling does. And uh, the reason was because I had read Lance Armstrong's biography and I was just drawn in and captured by this story about how this man who uh, was able to beat cancer and then come back and eventually win seven tours to France. I was just, I just could not believe this story and I was inspired by it and I went out and and did all the things you do when you're inspired by a story. But of course, we all know the end of the story now and how over the past couple years, his reputation has been uh, torn apart piece by piece as all sorts of things have come into light. And all of a sudden, this man who was such a hero to me has really fallen off his pedestal. Well, the David story is no different. It's the story about another hero who falls off his pedestal, a hero who falls. And what's the reality of the scriptures is if you look through all of the scriptures, you'll notice all these heroic characters all throughout the scriptures are people who fall off their pedestals as well. Those that we hold up to be these great giants of faith are people who committed atrocious sins just like David did. 
But what made all these characters so remarkable is not so much their character, but what made them remarkable is the one in whom they placed their faith in, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't looking for you to be a hero. He isn't looking for me to be a hero. He isn't looking for you and I to be more righteous and beat everybody else out at the righteous game. He simply calls us to admit our failures, to own up to who we truly are, and ultimately to embrace the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ.